Hello, I'm Joss Stone. Thanks for joining me for a cup of happy. I spent the last few years singing my songs in every country in the world and been lucky enough to meet incredible people from all walks of life. What really struck me is that no matter where we are, we're all on the same mission. We're all just trying to find our version of happy. So with this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to a whole host of people to dig deeper into the what, why, and how of this emotion we call happiness. I hope that with these conversations, you discover something to help you on your own quest for happiness, possibly change your mind on a few things, and along the way, share a good old laugh with me and my guests. Today's guest is a social scientist, musician, author, and host of the Art of Happiness podcast. He's also written many books. One of them is titled Love Your Enemy. We all need a bit of that attitude in our lives. This is one very, very clever man. And luckily for us, he's put a lot of that brain power into studying societal happiness. During this chat, I found out about the proven power of thinking positively, what we can learn from monkeys on cocaine, and so, so, so much more. We really managed to fit a lot into this one. I hope you can take something positive from this chat with the incredible Arthur Brooks. Right, I've got all my very important questions here. Great, I can't wait. Congratulations on your new podcast, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, honestly, it puts me in a really good mood because the subject is specifically that. So it's just about, oh, well, how can we be happier humans? What a lovely subject to talk about. You know, I suppose it does take you into different different realms. But I mean, you've been doing this for a while, haven't you? Chatting about happiness. Yeah, off and on. But now since since I'm back teaching at the university, I'm teaching the subject to graduate students and writing about it full oh. time. I'm, I'm dedicating the rest of my life to it. So, yeah. 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 I wanted to ask you, why did you decide to dedicate your life to that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've had, it's, I've done a lot of different things in my life. I started off as a kid in the music business. And so I left school when I was 19 and started as a classical musician and did that all the way through my twenties until I was 31 years old. I played in the Barcelona symphony for a long time. The French horn, I think it was, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. It's funny when you're, when you're young, when you're younger, um, you have a tendency to think of your specific activity as your vocation uh-huh. And it takes a little while to figure out that there's some underlying moral meaning that's not specific to what your job is. And I figured that out when I was in my late 20s. And you know, I was playing in an orchestra and it's pretty great. I mean, I don't have to tell you, I mean, you're a musician. Um, yeah, yeah, you're, you're, it's fun. You're, well, that's what you've done your whole life too. It's great. It, it is great. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely hard. Fun. There are times mm. when it's really, really hard. I mean, if you do anything to like a, to a high degree, I suppose, if you're kind of focusing on something a lot, it's going to be hard work at some point. But it's just lovely, isn't it, to make music with other people? It's like, oh, this yeah. is fun. This is it's life. Great. And yeah, and and I remember I read this um, quote from Johann Sebastian Bach. You know, maybe the greatest composer yeah. in the world mm. in history. And and Bach was actually asked why he wrote music. And so you know, I had been you know Bach's my favorite composer, and and, and I love his music, but I, I didn't know anything about him as a person. And and mm. he said that the. He actually says a quotation from very late in his career before he died. He said, the aim and final end of music, all music, is nothing less than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the soul. And I thought to myself, wow, yeah, refreshing the soul. 
Um, am I That's doing it. that? Yeah. And, and, mm-hmm. and I thought to myself, there's lots of ways to do that. Yeah. And um, so I decided I was going to look for the rest of my life in a way to answer that question like Bach, even if I wasn't playing music for the rest of my life. And so I, I went back to school. Uh, I got, I got my, my doctorate. I became a college professor. Then I went and ran a company for 11 years as a CEO. Oh, wow. And now I'm back teaching, and and each part of it is supposed to be to lift people up, people up, and bring them together. And as a social scientist, I have this I have this opportunity to study the neuroscience and social science of human happiness, which is the ultimate thing that lifts people up and brings them together. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I I, I left my CEO job when I was 55 years old last year, and I said, so what can I do for the rest of my life that's not going to disturb the train of lifting people up and bringing them together. What can I do with kind of the pure oxygen of that? I thought, mm-hmm. well, you know, my specialty, I'm going to study and I'm going to talk about and I'm going to share the secrets to A, being happy and mm-hmm. B, making other people happy. Exactly. Because this is what I teach. I mean, I teach not just how to be a happier person. I teach other people how to make others happier because sharing it is really the secret to it. I mean, this is the key. If there's one thing that people need to understand about happiness you will be happier if you dedicate yourself to making others happier. Give what you want. I a thousand percent agree with that. So I was um, I was going to ask you about charity. Um, there was something that you guys you were you were talking about on your podcast about the um, there's traits in people and maybe if they're religious or um, their family background that will decipher whether they give, you know, which I guess is kind yeah. of what you're talking about, whether you give and you want somebody else to be happy. Um, mm-hmm. Really, I mean, what are those traits and can, does everybody get joy from that? Or is there a group of people that really just don't, they just don't give a shit. It doesn't make them happy at all. <laughs> does that even exist? Some people, yeah, yeah. So, so giving is a funny business because it, it, we always think about giving in terms of what you're giving and how. Mm-hmm. Um, but people who are truly giving sacrificially, giving something that's valuable to them, that always brings joy. Every single time. Yeah, guaranteed. Every single time. To everybody, everybody. I mean, I'm so, I suppose you could be a sociopath. Wow. I mean, yeah. you could have this sort of dark personality characteristics or something. Somebody who's so Machiavellian. But I'm talking about people who have relatively good mental hygiene or emotional hygiene, that that it, it works for everybody. What spoils charity is when people are giving away something they don't really care about or they're doing it for ulterior motives, et cetera. But I've studied that for a long time. And one of the things that I found is that, it, and it's funny, Joss, because at first I was finding early on in this research that when people gave like money away, for example, I found that they got richer ah. after they gave money away. And I'm like, huh. You got ri- they and, got richer and, as in monetarily or just in their spirit? Yeah, monetarily. monetarily. So I didn't, I didn't believe it, right? But then I, right. I, I actually started doing better research based on, 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 on sound psychological principles and using natural experiments with human subjects. And it turns out that that's true. The reason is because when you give, you get happier. When you get happier, you become more successful. Hmm. So the money is the least of it. Of the, course. It turned, right? Yes. There's another a bunch of studies, or actually British studies, that show that when you give money or volunteer, that you get better looking. Huh. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. I suppose, yeah, you yeah, know yeah, what? Yeah. When you smile, you have a light. Yeah, that's right. And and so it, you do these virtuous things, these mm. other focused things that, that people perceive you as more physically attractive. 
And they're super fun and cool experiments that show that. But yeah, no, it's just there's just nothing bad about it. You know, mm-hmm. get, if you love it, give it away. If you have something that's important to you, keep the circulation going like blood and you will you will reap an abundance. Just never have a scarcity mentality about these things that you care about. Oh, that's such a lovely thought. And sounds like a lovely reality. Why don't people believe that? Do you ever get pushback? Do you ever get people saying, oh my God, you're talking absolute shit and I don't even want to hear it? I certainly do. <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah, well, it's, it's, if you spend any time on social media. Yes, well, exactly, which is kind of every, everybody's life. Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's everybody's fake life. And most people, they kind of know because their mothers taught them that. And they, they'll push back on it in sort of a sarcastic millennial way, which mm-hmm. is, you know, ugh, you know, eye-rolling, contempt, <laughs> you know, disdain for this kind of thing. But the truth yeah. is that people kind of know that it's true. Uh, and and one of the reasons that people don't behave that way is because they're afraid. Afraid of what? They're afraid of lots of things these days. And and the the reason I bring that up is because love and fear are opposites. And either you're motivated largely by love in your life or you're motivated by fear in your life. Those are the two polar. People think that hatred and love are opposites. They're not. Hmm. Hatred is downstream from fear. So if you find, for example, that you don't have enough love in your life, you want more love in your life. Mm. Don't go out looking for love. Go out looking for fear that's holding you back. What are you afraid of? Why is that paralyzing you? If you feel like you have too much fear, what you need is to look for more love that can actually neutralize the fear. So you get the point that I'm making. And when people don't express, you know, charity and expressions of sharing happiness, those are expressions of love. And Mm. when people don't do it, it's because they're paralyzed by fear. Fear of something, fear of others, fear of reaction, fear of intimacy, fear of closeness. And right now, you know, our societies are very, very driven by fear. Our politics, our social, I mean, social media is a huge culprit for this. Mm. And the news. Oh my God, the news. They're terrible. They they want to terrify people. (laughs) Yep. That's how you make, people make money when you're afraid. Yeah, right. Oh, I was listening to your podcast, um, The Art of Happiness, on the fear um, episode that that you did. Yeah. Um, And you'd said that fearfulness had risen between 2006 and 2018. Do you think that's because of social media and everything online? Because I feel like I remember in 2004 when I started singing, there wasn't a lot of online things going on. And then it started Mm. to seep in around that year. Do you think that that's related? Yeah. So what social media is, um, is basically terrible for people Mm. and, and for a bunch of different reasons. You know, one of the things is that when people are lonely, they turn to social media and they binge on it and it actually doesn't give you, there's a, there's a neurotransmitter called oxytocin Mm -hmm. that the brain producers that actually gives you intense pleasure from intimacy and real happiness. And you don't get it from social media. You only get it from eye contact and touch which is exactly what you don't get from social media. So what happens is that people get lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. And, you know, there are, there are scholars in the United States and Great Britain who believe that the epidemic of suicide among teenagers is, is, is in no small part connected to the overuse of social media. So social media is hard for young people. It's hard for people my age too. I mean, I find that I have, I even have colleagues at, at Harvard University who spend all day on Twitter. Yeah. All day on Twitter. And it's, it's ruining their productivity. It's making them fearful of everything. This whole thing about cancel culture. Oh, it's so mean. It's a horrible thing. And it's real. Yeah. And that's how that's the main vehicle for canceling people is on social media. 
And so anything that you say that's a tiny yeah. transgression, there's no forgiveness. It's all. And, and so that leads to fear and the fear crowds out love. And the result is that we wind up feeling unhappy as a result of that. So we have to fight that. And one of the ways to do that, more in-person relationships, way less social media. Nobody's social media use who's listening to us should ever go past 30 minutes in a day across all <sighs> platforms put together. Amen. That is a great idea. We could all put that into practice right now. Yeah, it's just hard to do because we're addicted. We have addiction problems, right? But why are we addicted to things that are so bad for us and make us feel so upset and so stressed? Why is that? Why aren't we addicted to the good stuff? Part of the reason that is that the good things become bad things when we become addicted to them and have a dysfunctional relationship with them. So, you know, Mm -hmm. wine is a good thing, but if you become addicted to it, it becomes a terrible tyrant. You know, and mm-hmm. the relationships that we can have with other people should be wonderful, and yet they can become dysfunctional and addictive and become a source of misery. It really has all to do with our relationship to different things and substances and activities that decides whether or not it's it's positive or negative, whether it brings happiness or unhappiness. And with something like social media, it really could connect you. And you find that's what we find in the research is that if you use it for less than half an hour a day, you will be using it to connect to other people. And then you're, it'll be a complement to your relationships. If you use it for more than that, it'll start to substitute for your relationships. You'll get a deficit of oxytocin. You'll get lots of dopamine, which is another mm-hmm. neurotransmitter, kind of like when you're hitting the lever, you know, playing the, you know, the, the, the slot machine at the casino yeah. or, or cocaine or alcohol or anything gives you dopamine. And you'll be using that instead of getting what you really want, which is in-person relationships. So this is the key thing, you know, with any any addictive property, look, it becomes unhealthy when it starts to substitute for real relationships and you use it in a dysfunctional way. And that's what we're doing with social media. It's definitely used more so, I've noticed, I kind of, I kind of have been looking at certain posts that are maybe salacious and negative and a little bit out there and kind of making people feel angry and the other posts that are quite sweet and good news. Yeah. People are yeah. not that interested in those. Three retweets, one like, if it's good news. Yeah, if it's good news, right, exactly. So yeah. is there is there something that's happening in our brains like um, where we're getting addicted to the stress, actually? It's not the stress. What is it? It's a, the negativity, it's the sensationalism. And the sensationalism, actually, what it does is it that, that little bit of excitement that you get from it, that stimulates right. this hormone, this neurotransmitter in the brain called dopamine. This is why people like horror movies, I think. It's why people like jumping out of planes. Yep, that's why they go on roller coasters. And that's why they look at whatever tweet, you know, the President of the United States sends out. It's like for a little a little thrill, whether they like it or dislike it, the more negative, the better. Oh, that's so... That's, and, they'll, and they're more likely to pass it on. The more outraged, the more likely they're to pass it on because they're really prisoners of the brain chemistry. And the same thing, by the way, is true of, you know, our devices which we're looking at all day long. It's very easy to spend five, six hours a day adding up all the minutes because you don't have nothing to do. And your brain has says, give me some dopamine, check your email, check your texts, check your social media. And you boom, boom, boom. You're hitting it all day long. I mean, it's funny. There were these experiments in the 1950s. We wouldn't do them today because they're not very ethical Mm. where monkeys (laughs) were allowed to self-administer themselves cocaine. Oh, and, and just to see what they would do, right? And they would be in these cages and you hit a lever and they would get cocaine. Mad. And so, you know, it's like so predictable. Within 24 hours, they weren't eating, they weren't sleeping, they weren't drinking. There was no, and they were, they would, they, and, crazy. And they would hit the lever until they died. And so we're, oh my God, that's so we're, awful. 
<laughs> oh, it's horrible. And so we're all like cocaine monkeys oh, with our phones no. and with social media. And, and you know, it's bad. We're killing ourselves, basically. It's horrible. Yeah. And dopamine is a terrible taskmaster. Ah, <laughs> oh, we have to be so careful not to turn into the cocaine monkey. I try to put out very positive things, but it doesn't always go that way because people just don't take it that way. I suppose you, there, there's the cancel culture and things that some people are very pissed off when you do that. So that's really interesting as well. Um, so you've, you've written for lots of different outlets and you've written millions yeah. of books and things like this. Um, I, I read that you were a writer for the Washington Post. Yeah. Now, the Washington Post, is that left-leaning or right-leaning? They're all left-leaning. <laughs> okay. So I also read, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you've gone from Republican to Democrat to in the middle to libertarian. So I'm thinking when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, wow, he's a very thinking person that has actually found some sort of balance, hopefully. Um, mm. When people go from this way to that way, it's because they're thinking. It's not because they're stuck. So whilst I was learning this about you, I was thinking, ah, but he's writing for newspapers. So how uh, do you navigate that job and stay yeah. balanced without kind of talking to the editor and having them go, well, I think you should be saying this. Like, how, how does that work? It's a world I, I just have no idea about. It's actually not too hard. I mean, I also teach at Harvard University, which is almost completely left-leaning as well. Is it? I'm not very political. Yeah. So I stay, I stay mostly away from politics because I think that the happiness issue should really transcend politics. It's so hard though, isn't it? Because everything is political. Yeah, I know. It's, it's horrible. And the reason there's a, there's a real vested uh, financial interest in making sure everything's political. Uh, and so yeah. when we hate Politically, mm -hmm. somebody's making money. A television network, a newspaper editor, a politician, an online personality. Somebody, every time that we hate, somebody profits and it's not us. So one of the things wow. on politics that I recommend as a happiness uh, specialist is mm -hmm. to, it, I mean, there's a lot of research that shows that the more time you spend reading about politics, the unhappier you will be. So true. The less informed that you will be, you know, people who read no news are actually less ignorant than people who read political news. Really? And the less people will like you, the more you read and talk about politics. And so the interesting thing for me <laughs> yeah, is that, so that even people who agree with you don't want to be with you if you're going to mm -hmm. talk about politics. So the number one lesson that people should take from our episode, which I think we're going to call cocaine monkey, yeah, I think is, so. <laughs> um, is don't be a political cocaine monkey. Don't do it because people <laughs> no. won't like you. You'll become ignorant and you'll be less happy. And so that's yep. what I practice when I'm talking, when I'm, re I'm writing for a newspaper. It's like people say, mm -hmm. what are your politics? And I say, who cares who cares we're gonna talk about you know what it you know because we're oh, yeah. i mean i have political opinions we all do but it doesn't matter because you know we're talking about something that transcends the politics we want to lift each other up we want to bring people together we want to be brothers and sisters and mm -hmm. we want to make people happy and that's that's so much more important to me than these political issues yeah it's so much more important i don't know it's just seeping into every single corner it's kind of mad isn't it um you know do you think celebrating um, the changes in life is a good idea. So if let's say we could celebrate, I don't know, the fact that we have women's rights now. Do you think it's really important to celebrate that? Um, or should we just kind of be quiet because some women don't think they have rights here? Should we be careful? <laughs> or should we be like, yay, everyone come to the party? Or is that just annoying? Well, it's, it annoys people who have uh, an activist agenda for sure, but it's much healthier to count your blessings. Now, counting your blessings right. doesn't mean you don't see injustices. 
I mean, I count my blessings all the time and I recognize that nothing's perfect. Yep. But, you know, one of the key things, one of the biggest secrets to happiness is gratitude. And the more grateful you are, the more it, it changes your neurochemistry. It changes your outlook on life. It changes your relationships with other people. That's another mm -hmm. thing, by the way, that'll make you more physically attractive is if you express gratitude toward mm -hmm. other people. I mean, there's just everything is good about it. We should be counting our blessings individually and as a society and say, mm -hmm. look, we've done all this for equality for women and for people and for immigrants and for yeah. everybody, because we all are brothers and sisters and yeah. we can do more. It should give us that sense of victory should give us confidence to actually go further and further. But you have to understand that in a, in a, a, in a climate of fear that we have today, again, people try to establish power by making sure that Joss is afraid and afraid of being canceled and afraid of other people and afraid that society is going to close in and take away your rights. Mm. So instead of having you be grateful and happy, they want you to be ungrateful and unhappy because that gives certain people who are outraged for a living mm. more power, more money, more privilege. And so that's, that's something that's really worth keeping in mind. Do you think they know when they're doing oh, it? Oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean... They're they're a com they're conscious of it. They're just like, yeah, let's just make everyone scared. Oh, do I think it's a conspiracy? No, 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 no. I don't think so. But I think a lot I think of people don't know it's any other way. It's got to be an way. accident. Yeah, you, I think you, a lot of people just don't know another way. Okay, they don't cool. know another way, and we just don't have a society. We need to create a movement, Joss. That's yes. why it's important that you're doing the podcast and I'm doing mine. That's important mm -hmm. that we talk about these things because what we need ultimately is a movement where people are dedicated to understanding their happiness, managing their happiness, and sharing it with others. It's a mm -hmm. three-part movement. And it only starts when we, you know, when we make it cool, we make it interesting, we make it smart. So we have, you know, rock stars that are talking about happiness. And we have professors that are talking about happiness. And, you know, this is the life in life, right? Mm, That's yeah. what we have to create a movement around. If we do that, then it'll be less likely that people will make that mistake of thinking that negativity, that hatred, that contempt, that anger, that these are the way to actually get, get meaningful social progress. I mean, it's amazing to me. I listen to politics in your country and mine. Yeah. And you'd think that you could you could persuade somebody with hatred and insults. <laughs> no, That's crazy. It's never happened in as human if, history. As if they're going to turn around and go, oh, my God, you're so right. Thanks for calling me the biggest wanker in the world. I now know that I'm wrong. I'm going to change my mind. It doesn't work, does it? It's just not <laughs> no, productive. No, no, no. It's not productive unless you're getting power from it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I've I've been brought up vegetarian. And I've noticed that the last, oh, I don't know, probably the last 10 years, it's become really popular and it's changing now. And now there's, there's like veggie burgers in the supermarket, the normal supermarket, and there's loads of choices. I'm like, wow. And I always said like way back when I was like, when it becomes fashionable, when it becomes a trend and it's cool, like you said, that's when it will change. But if it doesn't ever get cool, Mm -hmm. then it's never going to happen, right? Because people like to be part of a group. I think that it makes them feel maybe, I don't know, more comfortable and less like they're going to get cancelled. Yeah, that's right. You're not, then it's not weird. And so we have to work toward making it marketing these beautiful things in yeah. a way it's funny you know it's it's you can't you can't control popularity very well i don't have to tell you i mean no. you're a pop star i mean yeah. and you don't know i mean earlier in your career you, it would be great if everybody came to your concerts and bought your albums yeah. and listened to you on the radio and that would be great right yeah you didn't know though and then when it happened you're like 
wow, yeah. right? Yeah, it's kind and, of a and show. So that, and that's what you're doing now. You're basically, you're creating the next great movement of something good and true and beautiful. Oh, you know, so. it was, you did it with music and now you're going to do it with, with joy. It's the most important thing in the world is, is a good feeling, yeah. right? In the world, yeah. above everything else, you can be the richest person in the world. But if you're not happy, you really just, well, what's the bloody point? And you're sick. That's the thing. Um, what, yeah. what evidence have you found for people's, um, their emotions and their happiness levels affecting their physical health? So the key to understand about physical health and happiness is that um, to begin with, happiness and unhappiness are not opposites. Most people don't understand this. So you know, we often think that darkness is the op absence of light because you switch off the light switch and the room is dark. And that's kind of how it is with happiness. But that's not true. You don't switch off happiness and get unhappiness. They're actually processed in different hemispheres of the brain. Mm -hmm. And, and you have different primary emotions in the brain. So primary negative emotions are anger, fear, disgust, and sadness. Mm -hmm. And the primary positive emotions are joy, love, and interest. Oh. So when you're really interested in something, it's one of the primary positive emotions. But those are different parts of the brain that are processing that. So the key thing to understand is that you have two jobs, actually. One is to be happier, and the other is to be less unhappy. And they're different jobs with different tasks, okay? okay? Yep. So I have a whole th you know, set of tasks when I'm teaching my students at Harvard. I, have, I give them the, the happiness to-do list and the unhappiness to-do list. Oh. And a big mistake that people make is that they think that if they, they do something that will make them less unhappy, that they'll become happier. And that's not right. So, for example, if you have to drive a long way to your job every day, that will make you unhappy. Right. But if you get rid of that, it won't make you happier. It'll just make you less unhappy. Oh, and so I people see. have to figure out, do I have an unhappiness problem or a happiness problem? Mm. Now, when it comes to the physical health, physical health is really, really important on the unhappiness side more than it is on the happiness side. So what happens is that when people are unhappy, they get into a bad cycle. One of the things that you'll find is that people who are unhappy, they'll drink too much alcohol. Mm -hmm. They'll eat too many, you know, highly glycemic carbohydrates they won't get any exercise. Those are three things that you do because it gives you immediate comfort. The problem is that there's this, uh, it's called homeostasis. It's an effect in which you go back to your baseline, but you come back worse than you were. That's how you have a hangover. And that's why, you know, you start to pick up weight and this, you feel terrible yeah. when you do those things and mm. you get even unhappier. It's a downward spiral. Mm. So when you're unhappy and you're engaging in these behaviors, you have to cut the cycle. And the way to cut the cycle is with activity and nutrition and not using substances. Those are the three biggies. Those are the three mm -hmm. big things to do. And they go opposite of what you want to do. Your instinct is have a beer, sit on the couch and yeah. have a pizza. That's what Get you want. To, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Immediately. It, I mean, the yeah. first thing that you should do is when you're feeling like you want to sit around because you're bummed out, go to the gym. Go for a walk. Actually, that's even better is going for a walk because not everybody can get to the gym all the time, but almost everybody listening to us can go for a walk. Mm -hmm. um, that when you want to eat something highly glycemic, have an apple. It, you literally, it will cut your unhappiness. This cuts the unhappiness cycle. So I'm talking about this from a brain science perspective, not just from your mother's you know, advice, which is also very sound. Yeah. Uh, so that's the key thing to keep. And so it's, it's really helped me a lot. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm serious about nutrition and health and all that. And mm -hmm. the, the main reason is I know that for my work and for my life and for a way that I can help other people, the big impediment that can creep in is high levels of unhappiness. I don't mm -hmm. want that to happen. And so the way that I inoculate myself against it is with nutrition 
and exercise, and I don't drink alcohol or use any drugs. You don't That's the ever. reason I do those three things ever. Yeah, ever, I don't do ever, it at all. Ever. I mean, I used to. I was a musician, so you know what? What can I say, right? Right. Yeah, but now, no, 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 not at all. Because I know, I know how the unhappiness cycle works. Mm-hmm. Did it put you into a bad place when you did it? But I could have been, and right. I know, I know where it goes, and, yeah, and a lot yeah. of people, and people have to know themselves because people who are naturally very, very moderate, you know, like I'm not going to mm-hmm. give the advice to anybody that they should never have a glass of wine, but I am yeah. giving advice that they should never have six. <laughs> never. That's Pukesville. You shouldn't drink because you feel emotionally bad. Somebody said to me once, never drink to feel better. You should drink because you feel good already as a celebratory thing. Yeah. We should never medicate your emotions with a substance. That's the whole key. Mm. And so, and if you feel like that's the only reason you want to drink, then you shouldn't drink is the bottom line. And, you know, there's always a good argument for exercise and nutrition, but the whole point is cutting the unhappiness cycle. And it's not going to, you know, going to the gym and, you know, getting ripped and, you know, and and eating well, it's not going to make you happy, but it will protect you from greater unhappiness. We were driving through the lanes today and there was a lady running up the hill and I give her a big thumbs up like you go girl, because it's hard. We all know it's hard. If you run at all, it's hard. And she was like, (laughs) she had this big smile on her face and she didn't look like she was having the best physical moment because it's really difficult, but she was so... She had joy. And um, my boyfriend said, he was sat next to me, he goes, see, people that exercise, they're happier. They just are. It is what it is. She might be going through all sorts, but she's just, she's, she's proud that she's running up that hill. But it's easier said than done. It's very difficult to do that. And actually, she's just less unhappy is what's going on. Right. (laughs) And she's just less unhappy. Mm -hmm. God, that's such a funny, yeah, Mm -hmm. I never, I've never thought about it Mm -hmm. like that. To be less unhappy, to look at your life and kind of break it down and see what's the bits that are really pissing me off. Now, can I just remove those little bits? Yeah, or intervene in the cycle. Almost always, by the way, and the things that are making you unhappy, almost always it's because there's a fear element to them. And so examining your fears, something that's making you unhappy is because you're afraid. Being afraid keeps you alive, by the way, because, you know, the the threats that you see, you know, you jump out of the way in front of a car before you even consciously knew what was happening. Your brain uses fear for survival, but it's maladapted to the common environment because, you know, people will have a great friend who has, you know, a million Twitter followers or something. And he says, Mm -hmm. as he's opening up Twitter every morning, that his Mm -hmm. chest tightens up. It's because he has fear about what he's about to find. Oh, and, and, and that's a source of tremendous unhappiness. So when, when you're feeling unhappy about something and say, okay, I'm afraid, I've got fear. Where is my fear? Now, how am I going to cut the cycle of fear? And the way to yeah. do it is almost always to flood it with love, to neutralize it with love. Yes, I agree. Oh, that's <laughs> lovely. You say the loveliest things. ACAST recommends LGBTQ plus creators who are making an impact this month and beyond. Tune in for your new favorite show. Hello, I'm Danny Pellegrino, and I host the Everything Iconic podcast. If you're into reality TV and pop culture, subscribe to Everything Iconic, where I break down all of your favorite Bravo shows like The Real Housewives and Vanderpump Rules. I interview celebrity guests and take a bunch of detours along the way. 
Everyone from Cameron Diaz, Rosie O'Donnell, Daniel Levy, Andy Cohen, Katie Couric, and even Queen icon legend Miss Piggy have stopped by, so you'll never want to miss an episode. You can find me on social media at Danny Pellegrino and subscribe to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, the show with over 23 million downloads on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Flood it with love. Oh, that that should be the title of, of the podcast. Flood it with love. <laughs> it's a funny you said another thing about um how music is refreshing the soul i i wrote an album called water for your soul um and it's nice. like it is it, it kind of it kind of cleans you up if that's if that's what what you're about but flooding in anything with love yeah. and good feeling you know if my mum always used to say jossie if someone's mean to you or whatever just kill it with kindness mm. and she told me this story about a baker that lived down the road from her that was a real arsehole to everyone he was just really moody he was probably really probably fearful and probably just having a, a bit of a bad one maybe he was sick or whatever but he was mean to everyone and my mum had this bet with her girlfriend and she said do you know what I'm gonna get him to smile and be nice to me and she goes no you're not good luck he's been like this for years anyway mum went in there every morning and she was just so lovely to him every time he was horrible she was so sweet and she she flooded his whole bakery with love every day and he started to give her free bread and send her baskets you know it's like yeah. a perfect example of how that works to give good feelings so we all have a responsibility to do that absolutely his holiness the dalai lama one time said um, that I destroy my enemy when I make him my friend. Mm. And, and I asked him. Yes, the love your enemy. I said, I said, your holiness, I can't believe. I said, you're a Buddhist. Why do you want to destroy anybody? And he said, no, that's not the point. The point is what I'm actually destroying is not the person. I'm destroying the illusion no. that the person was my enemy in the first place. That's what love does. Love is like sulfuric acid against fear. It just is. And there's just, you can't maintain fear when you're expressing love. So it's, it's interesting. So there's a great set of studies about smiling that I like. So there's a, there was a physiologist, a French physiologist in the 19th century named Duchenne. And Duchenne, his whole career was dedicated to traveling around the world to map the human smile. So he went to New Zealand and, and New Guinea and India and, and every place. And he was mapping, looking at things. He wanted to know if smiles are culturally specific or whether or not they're universal. And he, it turns out that there are 19 types of human smiles, and they all implicate different muscles in the face. And there's one smile called that named. He named it after himself, of course, the Duchenne smile. <laughs> that's the only one that's implicated in true happiness. And the Duchenne oh. smile has nothing to do with the mouth, and it has only to do. I'm looking at you right now because you know. People are listening to us, but we're looking at each other right now. Yep. You're happy. How do I know? Because you're using the orbicularis oculi muscles in the corners of your eyes. Oh. Now, you're really young, but when you're 80, wow. you want crow's feet. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have loads of those. <laughs> it's great. That's what you want. That's your goal because that you've been Duchenne smiling your whole life. Okay. Now, the new research shows that when people simulate a Duchenne smile, that they will actually become happier. Why? Because they're fooling their brains into becoming happier and more loving and friendlier and nicer with other people. So one of the things I do with my students is I make them take a pencil. You take a pencil, okay? Mm -hmm. And you put it between your teeth and you mm -hmm. 
And when you bite down on it, it crinkles up the corners of your eyes. Now, it's good. people can't see us, so I'm not, it's not sticking out from my face. It's crosswise to my face. And I got it yeah. in my molars. Huh? And you can see the corners of my eyes that they're crinkling <laughs> yeah, up. That's I a Duchenne smile. Mm-hmm. If you do that for 25 seconds, you'll start feeling happier spontaneously because your brain has been fooled. See, see, this is the point that you were making. Great trick. What was going on is your mom, God bless your mother, she goes into the bakery and the baker who's negative, he's probably has a a tough marriage. I mean, he's probably got stuff going on in his life. Yeah. And so your mom goes in and she doesn't, she doesn't feel the love, but she basically gave him a, a, a Duchenne smile by force and she was kind by force. And it made her happier and it spread to him. And then there was love and there was a relationship. Bottom line, Joss, we can do this. It's in our power. People are like, ah, I'm not happy. I don't feel it. It doesn't matter. It's an act of will. It's not an act of feeling. Let's not be babies about this. Let's be adults. You know, let's use the science. We can do this. Yes. (laughs) I love that. Yes, it's true. You know what? Sometimes you have to pretend and then it becomes real. I've done that many Absolutely. times when I'm not feeling a gig or whatever. And I'm like, oh, okay, just smile and it will become something, you know. But the same goes mm-hmm. for if you're miserable too. If you don't practice using those muscles, right, it's not going to work. God, that's a brilliant thing. I didn't know that the guy had studied that. How many smiles did you say there was? 17? 19. But there's only one oh, good 19. one. So, uh, so the others are fake? Are they just... They're not fake. They just mean different things. So some of them are, for example, there's sort of the smile of acquiescence when somebody's agreeing to something like, kind of like, you know, mm, okay. And then there's uh, the, the flight attendant smile, which is no eyes, all mouth. Right. <laughs> which is, you know, the union says, I got a smile, you know, and it's... <laughs> They're trying, but it's just not quite getting to the eyes. So inside, they're like, I just want to go home. I just oh, want to go God. home and I want you off this plane. Oh. <laughs> we, If oh. we take control, if we learn just these techniques, but it's basic common sense, that if we decide mm-hmm. the people that we want to be, and then we are good actors about those mm-hmm. people, we will become those people. You know, if you basically say, like, I don't feel very generous today. I don't feel very nice today. But I'm going to, you know, it's showtime. And I go out of the house and I act more generous than I actually am. I become that person within minutes. It's magic. Mm. And the same thing is true. You know, if I go out and I say, you know, it's, I, I'm going to be on social media. Everybody's being a jerk. I guess I'm going to have to, you know, fit in and be a jerk too. You will become a jerk. It actually works. So mm-hmm. be, act like the person that you want to be. Action follows attitude, not vice versa. Not only are you that person for yourself, which makes you feel better, but also the person that maybe you were generous to is going to get that feeling. It's like a domino effect. It's like a ripple effect. Absolutely. If you're nice to somebody, they're going to be nice to somebody else and so on and so forth. And it goes for the negativity. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote a book called Love Your Enemy. Mm. I love that title. I have honestly been wishing that so, so, so very deeply. I wish that people could find a way to empathize with people that really piss them off someone someone that they really don't agree with or you know even to go so far as to empathize with the worst people in the world that have committed the most heinous crimes so i don't know if that's what the book is about but i just i've seen it and i've just intrigued by that sentence love your enemy and then you mentioned about the dalai lama's kind of Hmm. wonderful words can you tell us a little bit about that what you cover in that i must get it 
Yeah, yeah, that was a book that I wrote in 2019. And I was writing it in, in response to the bad politics all over the world. Uh, I mean, we've got this uh, the, the polarization that's going on where people consider people, I mean, that's like, it's amazing. I spent a lot of time in London, for example. And people think about fellow Brits as their enemies, which is just insanity. I mean, it's just crazy given the fact that people in your country, they, they have this great mm. civilization, this wonderful society based on yeah. strong humanitarian values with huge prosperity. And it's, right. and it's, helped, to, it's helped to lift people up all over the world. And, and somehow their fellow Brits, because they're in the Labour Party or the Conservative Party, they're, they're, and, and then I think, okay, well, well, am I so special? Let's come back to my side of the Atlantic. It's even worse. It's even worse. So the key thing is, <laughs> and I've done a lot of work with, yeah, I've done a lot of work with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He's a, a mentor and teacher of mine mm-hmm. uh, for the past seven years. Mm-hmm. And so I go to his home in the Himalayan foothills in Dharamsala, India every year. Oh, that's a nice trip to do. How lovely. It's wonderful. And he's helped me a great deal, a very, very great deal. And the key thing that he's reminded me of is something, you know, because, you know, I'm American and you're British and we were brought mm-hmm. up in a Christian tradition. Yep. And in the Christian, Christian tradition, love your enemies, is the single most subversive teaching of Jesus. It's in the, the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter, the 44th verse, where he says, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. Yep. And that was like, because everybody knows, you know, love your friends. It's easy to love your friends. That's why they're your friends in the first place, because you yep. love them. It's like, I love your friends. I was like, there's some advice. <laughs> But he says, do this different thing. And nobody had ever taught this before. Love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. And it turns out that that's a world-changing philosophy. And if we can actually live it, we will be perceived as leaders. We will begin to heal the world and you know, one person at a time. And for those of us who you know, have jobs where we have leverage over other people and we can teach other people or we can influence other people and, and influence the culture like you do, people will witness us reaching out and loving those with whom we disagree. And they'll say, oh, that's, that's, that, that looks really good. That looks really sweet. That looks really joyful. And, you know, just as the teachings of Jesus Christ changed the world for the better, we can use them in our own sphere of influence to change the world to make it better as well. And so the book is really about how to do that. Because it's hard. You know, if it were easy, you wouldn't need to tell people yeah. to do it. If you said, you know, you, you don't write a book called Love Your Mother because that's pretty, that yeah. comes pretty naturally. Although, you know, for some people, they should do it. They should call their mother. Everybody listening to us, <laughs> call, your, call your mother. Okay. Yeah. She worries, she's worried <laughs> she about is. you. Yeah, she's worried about <laughs> you. But. <laughs> but loving your enemies is a hard thing to do. So one of the things that I recommend, for example, on social media is that uh, – a sort of, I, I have this friend who who's a marriage reconciliation expert. He's brought thousands of couples together that were about to get oh, divorced. That's nice. And one of the things he makes the couples do, um, he says his hypothesis is that they still actually, almost all still actually mm-hmm. love each other, but they have a dysfunctional way of communicating where they act like they hate each other. So each one is like, I love him, but he acts like he hates mm-hmm. me. And the other one thinks the same thing. The partners think that, and, and it's a really dysfunctional thing. So what he makes them do is carry the care, carry lists, and he calls it the five-to-one list, where anytime you want to say something hostile or sarcastic to your partner, you have to actually put it on the list, and then you have to say five loving things Oh, first, that's a lovely little right? thing. Right? And so you're like, ah, oh, she picked me up late again. Oh, I'm going to lay into her. She picked me up late again. Okay, but first, I'm going to have to say, sweetheart, I want you to know that dinner last night was delicious. <laughs> And, and furthermore, 
I, I know that you left it out late for me because I was coming home from work. And I thought that was really very thoughtful oh. of you. And you look beautiful today. And I love your mother. <laughs> nah, forget that one. That's too hard. Anyway, too you get far. the idea. Where <laughs> oh, you go, that's a really nice You get the, the five to one mm. list. So, so what I recommend is that everybody listening to us do is adopt. You want to love your enemies and you mm. want to do it a practical way. So it's not just like a, a, a biblical theory. Yeah. Make a five to one list. Where you want to say something nasty and sarcastic and snarky on Twitter, fine. Write it down. Yep. Say something <laughs> but don't beautiful send first. It because you have to yeah. say five beautiful, loving things first. And I guarantee you, you won't get to the nasty thing. You won't. Because you'll at the, by the end of the five, you'll be feeling so good and so mm. sweet. And people will be giving you positive feedback. And you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah. That's the real Joss is sending out good vibes. Yeah. And the bad vibe, it just like, you know, it's going to sit there on your phone. It's never going to get sent. This is it. And that's how you do it. If somebody was to receive that five to one, even when they, if they did get to the one, the receiver would, I suppose, be in a better space to hear it, to hear the complaint. Because they know that it's coming to you Completely. with love. Absolutely. It's not nastiness. If it's nastiness, then obviously, then we go into yeah. a fight mode, right? Or flight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And neither of those two things are good. We yeah. don't want to fight anyone. Yeah, no, for sure. And for sure. And you basically, what happens is you engage a different part of the brain. Mm. So if you're, if you're in the five part, what you're doing is you're engaging the positive uh, primary emotions of the brain in the limbic system. The limbic system was evolved more than a million years ago mm. in the human brain. And so positive primary and negative emotions are involuntary. You can't choose them. You just get them. And so if you do the five beautiful things, you're going to be exercising and just like sitting in there mm. on the positive side. And then a little negative thing is not a big deal. On the other hand, you can get really, really good. And you see your partner and you, you're, you're about to get criticized because all you ever get is criticism. As soon as you see your partner, the amygdala, which is what stimulates, what's anger and fear. That's what really governs that this mm. lizard brain is going to be super hyperactive. It's going to be like on fire all the time. And so you have to basically stop doing that with each other. And we have to stop doing that with each other in politics and people who work with us. And they have to say, hey, Joss is here. That means it's time for my primary positive emotions to light up like <laughs> yeah. a Christmas tree. Because this yeah. is, I mean, look, look you started a, a happiness podcast for a reason. You're, you're, you have a beautiful personality uh -huh. and you're, you're a happy person and you're bringing oh, me nice. happiness right now. You've got my primary <laughs> positive okay. emotions lit up and that's a great thing. And that's the key thing for people oh, to learn lovely. from you, I think. You do, are you five to one-ing me? <laughs> You're about to do the one. <laughs> That's so lovely. Are you married? I am. I've been married for 30, almost 30 years. Oh, wow. Do you use these techniques and the, the things, I'm sure you've used the things that, that, that you've learned to kind of have a very healthy marriage. 30 years is not a little one. That's a long one. It's interesting. You know, I, I married a Spaniard when I was in the oh, Barcelona yeah. Symphony. And uh, one of the things that I've learned in studying happiness is that anger... Is, in, is completely compatible with a happy marriage. Did you know this? Oh. That it's perfectly fine to fight. Oh. What has to happen, tell. however, there's, these, there's a second primary negative emotion. So anger is a primary negative emotion, but you mix it with disgust, oh. which turns it ice cold and turns it into contempt. And it says to the other person, you're not worthwhile. So the biggest predictor of divorce is eye rolling. <sighs> is when you roll your eyes, dismissal, sarcasm, derision, because those things treat somebody with disgust. Oh. If you're angry, it doesn't matter. Now, the reason I bring this up is because, you know, when, you, when you, you've known Spanish yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Passionate. It's like, you know, anger is just a normal form of communi communication, totally. right? And so Britain and the United States were a, a little less effusive. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> kind of a, 
And and so, but you go to Spain and it's like everybody's yelling at each mm. other all the time. It's like I was per, like injured the first couple of years of my marriage. <laughs> oh, wow. But it did no, no damage at all. And one of the beautiful things about my wife is my wife never, never treats me with disgust. She never lets contempt seep into it. So she'll yell at me and she'll be real angry with me. And then it blows over like a summer storm. And that's the good thing. That's so it's normal to feel a little bit of anger, but never, never, never let disgust come into your any relationship. No person. Disgust is reserved for something you find on your shoe. Right. Disgust is never, never the right, the right uh, emotion to have for another human being. It's completely inappropriate. So that's the secret to a happy marriage. Fight with abandon, but also make up and love and never, never, never show disgust. I'm very glad we've had this conversation because I'm going to take that on big time. Are you getting married, Charles? No, I'm not. But I am okay. an eye roller. I'm definitely an eye roller. Uh, that's because you're a millennial. Possibly. <laughs> yes. I think, it, I think it might be. I do the whole, um, when there's any sort of uh, fight or anything argument, I really don't like it. I guess I get fear when when yeah. shouting happens maybe cause, maybe it's because i'm english i don't know but um <laughs> no it can't be because i dated a cockney bastard once and he shouted at me all the time but i i kind of <laughs> i would go into like the whole right i'm just going to pick up a book and roll my eyes and actually yeah now you put it into a different perspective for me i'm going to try my best not to do that yeah that's a dangerous business don't do that yeah basically if you ever act like you don't care when you're angry that's disgust Yes, that's, that's terrible. Mm. Yeah, I do think when you, if you lose care, and it's funny, I've had, I've actually had this conversation with friends, so I should take my own advice. When you lose care for, for each other, that's when you start swearing and being disrespectful and you don't care about how that person feels at all. And it's like, oh, you've really lost it now. You've really lost the opportunity to love each other in this moment. Yeah. The first step in a, in a dysfunctional relationship is, and, and, and it's a perfectly fine step. It's a normal, it's where you want to keep things is respectful anger. That's mm. normal. Okay, couples, Ooh. you know, I, I, I knew a guy who said that he and his, that he and his wife never had one single argument and then they just broke up and divorced. So I was like, well, what? And that's because they oh. actually never were able to work out differences with legitimate differences. Yeah, he must of opinion, have been so requires, confused. Yeah. Respectful anger. Mm. The second step is where it starts to get dangerous, which is disrespectful anger. And then the third part is where you're redlining, which is dangerous and actually leads to breakup, which is contempt because you start to mix oh. in disgust. And that's what turns the whole thing. So in other words, you've got hot, respectful anger and you've got boiling disrespectful anger. And then you've got ice cold. Oh, ice and cold. ice cold is almost a death warrant. Yeah. Oh, that's a bad one. Okay. I'm glad we've discussed this. I'm Okay, good. All right, I'm on it. I'm on. I'm about to warm up. And this is warm, and then this is cold. I'm good. so. Um, good, that's right. I can be very black and white. No, no gray area. My mum said, Jossie, you have to learn to sit in the gray sometimes. I said, No, mum. Gray is the gray area is for when you're trying to decide on something. It's for when you don't know or you're you're just not quite sure yet. And then you just move into the black or white area. She's like, No, no, no. That's not life. Um, I don't know. I feel, I feel like she's right yeah. about everything. So She's <laughs> you know? pretty right. Your, your mom she's is pretty, pretty right, right about, about everything. Yeah, yeah, I know. But the key thing is also your mom is probably, your mom is in her 50s or 60s or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so your mom uh, has learned the power of gray. Oh, yes. And, and this is key, oh, yes, right? I mean, young people, <laughs> yeah, young people are, are, you'd say philosophers would say they're Manichaean. Mm. And what that means is that they, they, everything is a black and white world. It's very easy. Yeah. That's the reason that young people tend to be more politically radical 
is oh because God, yeah, so know, it's, it's either you're good or bad. You're good or bad, right? right? And the right, truth right. is, you know, bad people are not all bad and good people are not all good. It, mm-hmm. it is gray. I mean, shades of gray. And we have to become better at doing that. As you get older, you start, that's the reason that, you know, I used to be more politically sure. I belong to one party, then I belong to another party. And it's like, ugh, I can't yeah, it handle depends it. depends what day I'm just it is, not, right? Mm. Mm. Well, it's, it's yeah. also just neither side has a lock on pure truth. No. And, you know, I, I'm looking for what's right all over the place, which is a very, very mm. gray philosophy. I'm with your mom. Yeah. I'm with your mom. Yeah, this. yeah. And with her, her attitude toward the baker, too. I'm, I like that, too. I know. It's such a lovely attitude. It really is. You yeah. know, if you can turn around to someone that's, I mean, even if, if it's politically, if, if, it, if you hate Donald Trump or you hate Boris Johnson or whatever, which most people always hate the man in, in power, regardless of how lovely he might be or how nasty. That's true. Um, if you can That's find true. the good bit, if you can strongman that guy, if you can find the positive in the bit that you think is dark, you will have a better moment, I think. Oh, for but sure. But it's just not always that easy to do. I mean, then people hear me say things like that. <laughs> yeah, they don't make it that easy. But, you know, know. They're, they're in a position of power. They're not going to please everybody. Um, yeah. I like to believe that even the biggest bastard on the planet has a good heart somewhere in there because we were all babies at one point. We're all born into this yeah. world and you learn, right. you learn to be angry, you know, right. but we're supposed to be pure and happy, I guess. I mean, how many people are really purely, what is it you call it when someone has no empathy for anyone else and they just want to chop them up into small pieces? A sociopath, a sociopath or a psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. How many, how many of those exist in, in this world? I mean, it's not many. They won't be many. We won't come across many of them. We hope we won't. And if we do, let's run the other way. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, God. Another thing I heard you chatting about on the fear episode was was Ted Bundy. The, um, the guy that wasn't he a mass murderer? And then your mum was like, I don't think you should be doing this, um, this paper round at 4 a.m. As a little bit of, you know, added color, Ted Bundy was a, a big, was a very famous serial killer in the United States. And, but it just happened that he had he was snatching girls out of my neighborhood. So so I grew up in a city called Seattle. Out of the the supermarket, uh, right? That you worked in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up on Oof. very near my house in Seattle, which is a working class neighborhood in Seattle, and that's it's where he was. I mean, doing his bad things for a certain. So my mother wasn't just completely un, irrationally paranoid. <laughs> she was definitely not. No, she had real reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's right. And then my dad was defending my ability oh. to do the paper wrap because he's like, ah, the odds are really low. There's going to be a problem. <laughs> this is why you have so much balance because you have this loving maternal human and then this very logical human that allows yeah. you to have love and also um, a science kind of attitude and a, a yeah. logical attitude to love. Exactly right. So if we can kind of look at life in a logical way, then we're, we're going to get to the smiles and love a lot quicker. But if we just look at it in a fairy tale manner without the other side, well, we're going to be slightly lost, I think. Correct. Just rolling around in Correct. the field waiting for the butterflies, but they're not coming for some reason because it's not butterfly season. Exactly know? right. Exactly right. Um, okay. So I, I wish I could keep you forever, actually. I wish I could talk to you for 50 million hours. You, you're so interesting. Wow. So are you, Joss. Thank you for giving so me part cool. of your time. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, talking to your listeners and learning yeah. more about your movement. And let's stay connected on all the things that we can do to lift people up and bring them together. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Thank you, love. Thank you. I'd like to thank Walida. They are our sponsors for this podcast.
They make beautiful, beautiful products in a beautiful, beautiful way. Did you know that Walida's iconic skin food range is a cult beauty staple? One tube of the original Walida skin food is sold every 16 seconds. One of my favourite products, you'll be surprised to learn, is actually Walida's men's moisture cream. I left my moisturising cream down in the kitchen and my lovely Cody had left his men's moisture cream on the side. And oh, oh, I loved it. It's so good. So guys, get involved. Your girlfriend may steal it from you, but so what? At least you'll all be moisturised. It'll be nice. You can learn more about Walida at walida.co.uk. Check it out. All right, on with our show. <laughs> 